this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we have reached the end of our rope. Uh-oh. Yeah. No, not really. If the rope is 2016, Jay, then yes, we've reached the end of it. Because this is our final review for the 2016 season. Season 6 of Dig Me Out. We got one more episode, which is our wrap-up episode. We'll go into our favorites from this year, you know, reminisce about our memories of the 2016 season mm. and uh, all the things that happened. But we like to, uh, you know, at the end of the year, throw a couple of our own picks in for um, reviews. Last week, we reviewed the self-titled 1996 album by imperial drag that was your pick and so jay this week i made a pick also a self-titled album also you could kind of describe it as a uh a, not a super group but definitely com- it combines bands in a in a sort of a one-off project although this ended up being a two-off project i'm talking about hater jay sounds intense yeah we're gonna throw some haterade around I know we've said this a couple of times, but wow, is that the most 90, 90s band name ever or what? It might be the most 90s band name. <laughs> like there wouldn't be a band in the 70s or the 80s called Hater. No, there wouldn't be. Hater J, of course, is the project of Soundgarden bassist Ben Shepard and uh, drummer Matt Cameron, along with ex-Monster Magnet guitarist John McBain, and then uh, vocalist Brian Wood, who would uh, be the brother of Andrew Wood from Mother Love Bone. He was in the band Devilhead. That was the uh, the lineup for this particular record. It came out in 1993. It's self-titled. Ben Shepard, who's the bass player in Soundgarden, actually played guitar on this album. And then John Waterman played bass on the record john waterman was also i think uh in wellwater conspiracy or was that no that was john mcbain was in wellwater conspiracy which is another offshoot project in the 90s um wow yeah so this was actually just uh, reissued not too long ago on vinyl back in uh, i think july so who reissued this uh, UME is the huh. name of the company. It's so, the name of a band. You're thinking of UMI, but this is UME. No, there's a band called UME. Oh, is there? Yeah. Or UMI, depending on how you're. U- Team Umizumi. I, I think they say UMI. It's an Austin band. Okay. Uh, so were you familiar with Hater, Jay? Uh, I remember when the band, um, when the record came out, I remember a conversation uh, and buzz around it. Uh, I mean, uh, Soundgarden was huge at this time, right? So oh, yeah. it, was, it made some waves. Uh, I don't think I heard it at all, but I, I remember hearing about it. Right. There were a lot of, I guess you'd say, side projects that came out of, or, or one-offs or solo record recordings and random things that came out of Seattle bands 
in the night. I mean, that's what yeah, Temple of the so Dog I, was. And that's what Mad yeah. Season was. And I, yeah, so very much was in that uh, that that time period and associated with those types of releases. Right. So a little bit more info on this it was released on A and M Records, which only in the nineties would the bassist and drummer from a successful band be able to go to their record label and say, Hey, we want to make us, we want to make a record. Just the two of us. <laughs> like we'll bring in some people to sing and whatnot. Like there was so much, I I'm guessing goodwill based on the success of Soundgarden. Well, think about it. I mean, those record, those labels like a and probably thinking, Holy crap. We got to go find the next five sound gardens. So when sound, when members of Soundgarden show up and like, Hey, we like to make another record. They're like, there we go. There's one of seven. Yeah, exactly. Box checked. <laughs> so yeah, it it, it uh, based on how how bands were being signed and the tight and the just the uh, the sheep mentality that was out there. It doesn't surprise me. So this album was released September '93. The band broke up and then uh, actually ended up getting back together. They they broke up. I'm gonna say. 90 well they actually recorded a second album in 95 after the super unknown super unknown tour in between then ben shepherd would work on the well water conspiracy album which we discussed earlier uh he played with mark lanigan um and then hater broke up in 97 but uh ben shepherd and mcbain would end up playing on the first desert sessions uh, recordings by Queens of the Stone Age uh, frontman Josh Ome. And then um, the second album finally did come out. It's called The Second, and it was released in April of 2005 through the label Burn, Burn, Burn. But for that album, it was a bit of a different lineup, I guess. I think, I believe, for the tour. Uh, Andy Duvall of the Zen Gorillas, or Zen Gorilla, which we reviewed their album this year. Uh, he played drums as opposed to Cameron because Cameron, of course, at this point was in Pearl Jam, so he couldn't just, uh, you know, run off with Hater. And they played, they did play one reunion show with Matt Cameron in September of two thousand eight in Seattle. Uh, but I, I believe that the band is, I guess, done. They only, they're, they're, you know, Soundgarden's back together. Uh, McBain is uh, off doing his thing. So I don't believe that there's going to be any future hater releases. So let's get into talking about this record, Jay. Let's do it. Turn it on. Since I was the one who brought this to the table, Jay, I'd like to get your opinions. I want to do point out. I knew you you were going to do that. I want to point out this is a 10 song record rarity i know in the 90s i know it's it's kind of kind of a uh, miraculous i was shocked honestly when i got to the end of it the first time i was like wait a minute where are the other four songs right exactly like <laughs> something wrong with my itunes like what is going on here so tell me what one thing did you like about it well this is a for better or worse i felt like this is very much a quintessential garage rock band in every sense of the word and there's aspects of that that I think come across quite, quite well. So uh, there's a sense of spontaneity maybe or just 
Um, there's a rawness where it's not rawness necessarily in all of the playing, mm-hmm. um, but there's definitely a rawness maybe in the development of the song and just sort of there's certainly these songs are certainly not overworked <laughs> by any means. And, and, and sometimes that, that can be really nice. Like you can hear that come across on a record where it just sounds like you can tell it's fresh to them. Um, that they haven't been in a rehearsal studio playing this for months and months and months. Like they probably just came up with it and there's little things here happening here and there and you can kind of tell that this happened in the moment and it works. So I think, and it just gives it also just kind of a relaxed kind of vibe. So I, I kind of appreciate that. Um, that's probably the most consistent thing also through the record is just that, um, that approach and attitude I don't necessarily think it's always the the songs themselves or even the style because I think the band shifts around quite a bit, which <laughs> in some ways is is uh, what true garage bands are like as well. You also hear it in the at least in the the way it's presented here. There's like a difference in competency with the musicianship, at least to me. Like you can tell the drummer knows what he's doing. Obviously Matt Cameron and the guitars are sometimes not that. I'm sure he's a very good guitar player, but on the record, there's some stuff that sounds, I don't know, raw and a little amateurish sometimes. And then it gets really sophisticated at other times. So there's kind of like this, like very much of, you imagine like, you know, you're in a band or we're around bands that were like teenagers or young where you've got like some kids that are really good and some, some that are not that good yet. And they're all just kind of playing together and making some music and, trying to make something together. I think that very much comes through as well. So uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's the the thing that's most unique worth noting that works. I, I guess the word I would use for this is it's kind of ramshackle. Yeah. That's, that's the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I enjoyed that because, you know, w- when you're expecting, you know, Soundgarden on Super Unknown and, and Down on the Upside and even somewhat on Bad Motor Finger is a pretty well-oiled machine. Um, as and all those bands from Seattle were, I mean, they were all, you know, extremely competent musicians. They weren't necessarily always showy, but they were well produced. You know, Brendan O'Brien had a hand in that. Mike Clink as the producers of those records. Those were those were seasoned guys. Yep. They, they all sound good. You know, this sounds like a couple of guys who have been working in that format who wanted to let off some steam and do something that's a bit more loose and improvised and of the moment you know when you put Soundgarden and Monster Magnet together you're thinking oh this is going to be some sort of weird heavy stoner yeah. rock metal combo but really it's not I mean it has more in combination with like the Stooges and you know just like 60s Nuggets psychedelic kind of sounding stuff and I really kink, kinks here and there yeah the kinks and even like going into weirder you know less uh less um pop territory and and that's an interesting diversion and i think it works well in the 10 song format like you said if this had been you know 14 songs as as we were expecting when you're prepping for a a 90s album it would have worn out its welcome real fast uh but with it only being 10 songs and 10 songs it's like 31 minutes yeah I mean, not drilling down into each song, but that's pretty uh, digestible. Now, there are songs that work better than others on here, um, but I appreciated the 
Brian Woods sort of um, I don't know who to describe him. He sounds like he sounds like a a, a guy doing like um, doing Jim Morrison via like Lou Reed. <laughs> like it's just like no. this weird kind of beat poetry ish. Like some of it's very repetitive and but it's all sung in this like da 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 like it's like does does he sing on every song? Well, I I I think Ben Shepherd sings somewhat because he's credited with um, with vocals as well. Because somebody sounds like Andrew Wood. I mean, at least at, at well, that'd be Brian Wood. I'm guessing of, of Andrew Wood. So, like on Roadside, I mean, there are a couple tunes on here where I'm like, there's portions of the songs where you're like, oh shit, this could be a malfunction demo. Like I felt like Roadside felt very much like that, and even to the point of sounding like. Andrew Wood-ish. And I kind of, maybe because that was familiar to me, a Putrid was another song as well that um, I felt like could could have been a malfunction song. Maybe not Mother Love Bone, but maybe a malfunction song, which Brian was, Wood was in that band as well, right? Um, I think he was the guitar player. That so, Putrid song, he sounded like um, the lead singer of Placebo on that song. Oh, yeah? Did you, I, I don't know if you felt like that, but... He had this. Is it Brian yeah. Loco or is, is that his name? Yeah, super, yeah, kind of high, high pitched falsetto. But yeah. Andrew would would do that sometimes too. You get into that register. So I found that like totally unexpected. You know, I the record starts off with the first two tracks uh, in in that <clears throat> in that simple riff, kind of straight up guitar, uh, garage rock kind of place and i thought that's what we'd be in for the rest of the record but then it takes these turns where yeah it goes into this psychedelic kind of mother love bone ish but demo quality thing mm-hmm. and then there's some other songs where totally out of nowhere like um uh what's the acoustic to instrumental lion and lamb track four yeah like where did that come from like the guitar playing sounds totally different. Doesn't sound like anybody in the band. There's barely any, if no drums or bass. It sounds like an open tune electric and acoustic together. Like there's a little bit of dirt. So it looks right. like, like they layered, but it sounds like it's like open tune to some like, it's almost like an Eastern tuning.
well, when it starts, it sounds like, oh, well, this could be one of the, you know, this could be a Chris Cornell Soundgarden song, like right. the guitar sound. And then it, uh, you know, goes in some other places. But I guess my point is, you don't hear, see that coming. No. <laughs> it kind of out of nowhere. You're like, where did this come from and where are we going now? So there's a couple left turns like that. And I guess Ramshackle is a good way to put it. Um, and I don't know. Um, the consistency of the drum and bass is, is important. I think it's the only thing that really holds this album together as an album. Because mm-hmm. I think Matt Cameron just plays like Matt Cameron no matter what band he's in. He's just he's him. And you can hear that on here, and it provides that sort of solid basis. And then I think McVeigh and Brian Wood just kind of go all over the place. And most of the time it kind of works because it's held down so well, but there are some times where it's just out there, like not cohesive and not quite sure what exactly they're right. going for. So I want to... I should have done this up front, but there was a couple of uh, comments on Patreon that I want to bring up now from uh, a couple of our subscribers. One was from uh, Gavin. He said, I have this, but I it managed to slip through the cracks a bit. I like it, but was buying a lot of music at the time, and it just didn't stand out. My first reaction to the review was, haven't you done this already? But that was handsome, which I guess is how I remembered both. remembered remember them both. Looking forward to a few spins and review and uh, i'm glad you've put it on my horizon i believe that was also handsome is another self-titled one and done (laughs) uh group featuring members of multiple bands uh so i can understand why you might get confused with that one um and then eric peterson said uh there was a point when i was picking up all the side projects from the main seattle bands shame by brad and the self-titled Hater album being at the top of the list. Hater is one of the early rock, early projects that started me on the road to checking out Garage Rock and their basic stripped-down sound. While I was never going to check out that hippie Cat Stevens stuff, the first song on the album is a Cat Stevens cover, um, the cover of Blistered got me started on the Johnny Cash trail as well. Blistered is a cover of a song by a gentleman named Billy Ed Wheeler, which I believe that... Cash was the one who made it famous. I have a very vivid memory of picking up Hater on CD at the midnight sale for... This is actually funny. For the releases that week, I waited in line, got to the counter, and asked for the album. The clerk blinked at me a couple times and then went to get it. I might have been the only one out of the hundreds of people shopping that night who was there for that album. Uh, some, some, Some other album called In Utero is coming out. That's funny. So yeah, the Johnny, the blister Johnny Cash uh, turn is another one of those love turns I'm talking about. Where it's what, what, why, what are we doing here? I think that's a case of we're a major band. We we're in a major band on the the label, so we can kind of screw around on our side project <laughs> and do whatever we want. Well, I think that, yes, you're absolutely right, and I think there's that's not the only instance of that. There's right. a couple more of that, uh, more of those happening here. Yeah, which is not uncommon. I mean, yeah. I bet if you were to go through a lot of artists who were able to do strange side projects on, from from major labels, there you'd find a lot of stuff that makes you go, uh, "Okay." 
Yeah, right. but I think the uh, so let's look. We forgot Brad, right? That was a great call out. So to me, that's um, it, it is strange in different areas, but it's cohesive and right. Like you can tell, they worked hard on that record. You know, this feels a little like under considered. Like, yeah, I mean, the impression I got was, "Hey, cool dudes, we got a record contract. Let's go in the studio this week." Like and see what happens, and this right. is what happened, and they just turned it in. Yeah. Well, got ten songs. Here we go. Here, go put this out. I can hear that, and and that's where that's why it's hard to put this up against. I don't know if there were any commercial aspirations for this record. I'm guessing there weren't. I'm guessing this was we're gonna make a record and put it out, and if a couple thousand people buy it, cool. But it's gonna be because you know of the association with Soundgarden, essentially. Yeah. Um, as a little offshoot project, you know, I guess it works. I don't know that it's something that maybe off, maybe besides a song or two, I would want to revisit. I don't know. It's uh, it's it's an odd, so it's an odd note in a decade where I don't think it can happen anymore. Oh God, no! Well, if it was, it would be just posted straight on um, Bandcamp. Right. Yeah, now artists can do that, but they would just like post it to their website or release it on their Snapchat right. or Right, a label wouldn't fund this activity. No. <laughs> this would be done in the you know the uh the studio the artist already owned or their Pro Tools set up. Over e- over email. I'd be curious, like did they have it's, there's something listed on Wikipedia. I, I'd be curious if they had a producer you know, like how many did this actually sell? Was there any sort of promotion in terms of like, did they push a radio single? So I, I don't know what song you would push. Yeah. Uh, I don't know either. I do feel like there was some. I mean, I like I said, I had heard of the record. I mean, I, in 93, I'm not, you know, there's no internet. I'm not like, yes, I was aware, but I wasn't like buying zines or anything crazy. Um, right. So usually if I heard about a record at that time, it had to be, be through some promotion of some kind. Right. So w- what would you do for a single guy? I have no idea. I mean, I guess you could try to, <laughs> you could try to do a song like how do I kill, which I wanted to, where it's just like a kind of a simple novelty tune. Did that sound like, uh, <laughs> going back to the garage Brock theme again, uh, when I was listening to, it, I was like, Holy crap, this could be one of the unreleased Howard Stern band electric comic book uh, songs. Like this could go next to uh Silver Nickels and <laughs> Silver Nickels and Golden Dimes. And uh what's the other one? Something B. Oh, I don't remember. Psychedelic B. Psychedelic B. This could be track three. <laughs> I just need Howard's organ on it. Yeah, I I don't know what I don't know where your single is. Which is probably the point. It's it's not a it's an album. It's not a. There's not going to be a single. I guess that's the ultimate uh, summation of this record. Is yeah. there is no single, and it doesn't make it terrible. It's an interesting document. Yeah, I think it's a it's a little. It's a fun little artifact, right? I mean, like to the point we started this whole thing with. This is of the time. Like, there's no way this could ever happen again or before. 
Like this is unique to that period that this album can be made in this under the circumstances that it was made and even the sound of it, you know? Right. I wonder if, uh, so A&M is also the same label that two years earlier put out the Temple of the Dog record. I mm-hmm. wonder if they thought they were getting another Temple of the Dog. <laughs> because, you know, you got a couple guys from Soundgarden. You got Andrew Ru- Andrew Wood's brother. Sure. Uh, you know, I wonder if they were like, oh, you know, you know, they got three singles or two singles out of that record. I wonder if there was some A&R guy who thought, oh, we could totally pull another rabbit out of the hat with this one. And then they get the album. They're like, Oh, well, this, that's not going to happen. Uh, I would not doubt it for a second. <laughs> it sounds very, very plausible. Because, I mean, the the Mad Season album, so that came out March of 95. So that's a couple years later. But the, the lead single, River of Deceit, that's a very, like, if you heard that and you were like, that's that could be Alice in Chains. Mm-hmm. I Don't Know Anything was another single. Um, not as successful as River of the Sea, but that also kind of sounds like Alice in Chains. So it's not like it's that far off from what El- what Lane Staley was doing. There's like no correlation between Hater and their actual sound and any band that any well, of those guys it, are in. If you're a drum nerd, like you could hear something like Circles and and see, oh, this is basically Rusty Ca- Rusty Cage from a drum standpoint, or. Right. Down under stone, like sounds like a sound garden, like a or drum part. But yeah, to a normal person who doesn't geek out over stuff like that, like I do, you would have no there would be no connection for you to those bands. Right. Then I return to my original statement that this probably only sold a couple thousand, and they were probably, you know, diehard Soundgarden fans or drum nerds who were really yep. Matt Cameron. Yep. <laughs> or just or there were people like Eric who just bought anything. That was any side project of a Seattle band, which I would probably have been guilty of, too, because I'm pretty sure I bought Stone Gossard's solo record, Bayleaf, and was like, what the hell is this? But I, you know, it was Stone Gossard, which is funny that he needed to do a solo record because that's what Brad was supposed to be, wasn't it? Like his side project. So he needed like a side project from his side project. Yeah, well, I think that Sean Smith became such a identified part of that band that it couldn't be just him anymore. Plus that had like Reagan Hager and uh, Jeremy Tobik. So it it was a little bit of like a mini super groupy kind of thing. I mean, not that those guys were huge, but they were known in that in Seattle. So, I mean, I think it was like trying to make a new band. Have we reviewed that record? Um, well, no, because we had Sean on and we covered EDC with him. Oh, uh, okay. And we went track by track through that. So we haven't gone through any other records. We should do 
Brad Shame. Be, we should, be we'll we'll get him back, back on the show and we'll go through Shame. Because that's a weird record. There's some there's some we could talk about Rockstar. <laughs> uh let's let's talk about overall ratings for this record, Jay. Worthy album, better EP, or decent single. Will this defy the odds? Tell me, Jay, what'd you rate it? Ooh. Boy, I'm gonna be honest and just say a single. Uh, yeah. I could piece together an EP, I guess, to be kind. Um, but at the end of the day, I think if you just sampled one of these songs, you would get the gist of it. And now that's saying that, yes, the the styles can vary, but overall you'll kind of get the – I could give you I – could, I could pull like maybe half of this record out. You could listen to anyone and get the basic gist of it, and I don't think you would be chomping at the bit to hear more. But it would be sort of a fun little, you know, if you're knowledgeable of the 90s, it would be a fun little tidbit. But beyond that, I, I was I was struggling to, to kind of get the, to grasp it and to, to get into it. I think that there is a, I think there's four songs here that either do a, a four song EP, like a, a 12 inch or a, or a CD EP, or you could do a double seven inch release with uh with uh, one song per side um i i like the first two tracks just their weirdness and and whatnot um you mentioned the circles that's a cool song and then i, I would put uh, sad mcbain is i don't mind that song so i think i'd take those four tracks and make them into a little ep or like i said like a double single or whatever and uh that'd be enough for me the like I said, the stuff that started to sound a little like malfunctioning, I I I liked, but it, it's one of those things where it made me want to go back and listen to like those Mother Love Bone demos that were just released on that box set. You know, it's like yeah. it makes me want to go listen to the real thing. Sure. Um. So. All right, Jay. That's it. Last last review of the 2016 season. We have done it. It's in the books. Already got a lot of reviews. For our 2017 season, ready to go. Uh, a lot of roundtables we're going to be doing, setting up interviews, all that kind of fun stuff. Want to remind everybody, Patreon is the place to go to find out about everything we're going to be doing well before the general public. You can join us at the one dollar level to get basic info, and at the two fifty level which after 12 months gets you a requested review. And in fact, our first review, Jay, of 2017 will be from our first Patreon subscriber who joined us back in December of 20... uh, End of December of 2015. So... Awesome. That's very cool. We'll announce that episode, what that first review is going to be on on our final episode of the year. And of course, if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at itunes for jay i'm tim we're out and we'll be back next week with another episode of dig me out thanks for listening you can support the podcast by becoming a patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash dig me out or requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at dig me out podcast.com because you know